Welcome to the All Outdoors Photography Podcast with your hosts, Henry Doyle and Ryan Taylor, where we discuss all things related to outdoor and nature photography. In today's episode, we discuss various compositional techniques that we use in our outdoor photography and the ways that we compose our photographs. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the episode. Uh, we're on, what is it, episode eight now, <laughs> somehow? Yes, we are. <laughs> we're, we're finally rolling into them. I think we kind of settled in, but um, this one's going to be about compositional techniques. So we're going to be discussing... Uh, between the two of us, me and Henry, we're going to be doing just how we compose our photographs. Um, I'm going to give some loosely give some few examples of photographs I've taken over the years, and uh, I know Henry has as well. But uh, we just wanted to mention first. You may have noticed that uh, Rylan is unfortunately not with us anymore, so he mm-hmm. he's had quite a busy schedule lately, and um, unfortunately he could not devote the time to the podcast. But really going to miss him because um, you know we had yep. a lot of fun, of course, with him on the show. Mm-hmm. And since we do have you know, just two of us now, we're definitely even more willing to invite some guests on. So please reach out to us. If you're into nature photography, we'd love to have you. So you could email us or DM us or wherever you can contact us. So, yeah. Or even if you want, uh, once a week record with us and become an actual host. Um, that's something we're, we're not really looking for necessarily. Um, we definitely want guests of course, but you know, if you're able to, and you have a proper schedule for it, so like Henry said, uh, also, if you're interested and you have a fairly open schedule where you can record with us once a week, uh, we are interested in if you would like to be a regular host with us. And that's another thing that we're looking forward to. But uh, I think for now, we definitely just want you know some guests on to share some different perspectives uh, from outdoor photographers like ourselves. Yes. And um, so let's just get into composition. So what we were thinking about going into first was like how you find compositions. And in my opinion, at least, I think every photographer has a different style of composition or of how they find compositions. So, Ryan, what do you do to find your compositions? Uh, well, it's, it's several things, really. Um, I would say I look for color. Um, I look for good light. Um, I'm a big fan of boring flat light, as I like to put it. Um, but I definitely look for if it's a sunrise, sunset, um, something you know, vibrant or beautiful, very colorful, or it could be something that's very more subdued and kind of moody or uh, minimalist, if you will. Uh, so I look for colors. I look for leading lines, like a vanishing point. Maybe I'll like off center. If I'm in like a meadow or prairie, I'll off center the, the winding path down to one kind of corner of the frame, or even like an S curve if it's a winding trail, or even like an S curve in a waterfall that may be just kind of cascading mm-hmm. down different rocks. Um, but yeah, those are the main things I really look for. Um, like if I'm doing a macro photograph of maybe like a wildflower or like a, um, at a local garden, I usually photograph it head on. So I have this, you know, the top of the head or the flower, uh, filling the frame, uh, top down perspective. Um, if it's an abstract, that's just really whatever I kind of feel like and whatever the camera, uh, kind of dictates for me. And those compositions are mm-hmm. just, you know, their colors, their patterns, their streaks. There's really no defined subject yeah. necessarily they're just kind of for lack of a better term like all over the place um but it's just yeah mainly colors uh kind of creative lines uh just ways to really challenge my my audience and my viewers and to make them kind of think like huh how'd you take that or you know what's mm-hmm. like steps but literally and figuratively did it take to uh, create this kind of image would you say you're more of a person that goes out in nature and looks for photos or you just let the photos come to you uh, both. Yeah, definitely both. Um, I feel like the initial 
kind of idea of going out um, to a local, you know, nature reserve or somewhere like that is I have an idea set in mind, but by all means, I'm not, you know, deadlocked on getting it because obviously the weather conditions change throughout the day or however long you're there. So I just simply let the kind of the, the experience, I guess, um, not to sound too hippie like, but they let the experience kind of come to me and um, kind of fuel my, you know, my creative process and really what I see out there. Mm-hmm. How about you though? All right. So for me, when it comes to finding compositions, um, I think I've evolved a little bit. Um, in my beginning days, I think like all of us, I really just took pictures of everything. I walked around and just thought everything was the best photo in the world. And then I would come home and, you know, really be really disappointed because, <laughs> you know, either the lighting was bad or I don't know, or I shot it wrong. But now I try to be a lot more intentional. Um, I'd say for wildlife, I'm pretty much reactionary only. I'm not one of those photographers that sits in like a bush with like a giant camouflage suit and like waits for like <laughs> six hours for a squirrel to like go on the right branch. No, I'm usually moving around. I don't have a lot of patience wildlife wise, at least. So um, that's really reactionary. But for my landscapes, I really do try to find a proper composition. And if it's not good light, I will never take the photo because I just, I really don't like the disappointment. I really, when I go for a photo session, I like to have at least one good photo. Um, so I try to look for those interesting scenes. Um, I really like looking for texture. Um, I've always loved waters, so some kind of waterfall, even a small little stream. If I can get that into a landscape shot, um, I'm more likely to really like it. Uh, I really like, just kind of different colors. So like if the ground is not its typical brown color, I like some, maybe there's some clay in the ground or something, just some extra orange that you could bring out. Just look for those hidden colors that you can enhance and post. Um, Ryan mentioned abstracts, um, but for me, abstracts are kind of my like last resort. <laughs> if I can't find a composition, <laughs> I just turn up that shutter speed and just move my camera around and, but I've gotten some great abstracts, and that, that works. So I would suggest that if you're really feeling bad about your shot. Um, and then also I do look for those S-curves, like Ryan mentioned. Um, specifically, I have a pretty good success story with an S-curve. The only winning, the only award I've won is this waterfall that has an S-curve. Um, it's like a stream going down one way, and then it goes down the other. And so... That got me best color print at the state fair, so I definitely love looking for that. So that's pretty much how I find compositions. Um, one thing I do need to get better at is just enjoying hiking, because even though I don't take pictures of everything, I tend to always be thinking about photographing instead of just enjoying the hike. So I think I do need to improve that a bit. But yeah, I mean, so yeah, yeah, good good points there. Um, I pretty much agree, pretty much with all of it. Um, I just will say, yeah, the walking away from a photograph is something I've really had to learn because um, early on, like most uh, amateurs, it's like you're just kind of more stubborn and you just want the conditions to work out in your favor. Uh, but of course, you know, when the outdoors, a lot of it's out of our, largely out of our control. And uh, it's something I've learned, had to learn. Something I've been doing a lot more recently is just knowing when to walk away, like you said. So like if it's just super cloudy, it's like a wall cloud where the sun is setting. Um, I'm not saying always do this, but 
because you know you never know if conditions might you know turn around. But if it's just complete sheet of clouds and there's no gonna be no sunset for like maybe a potential composition I have in mind, then I will simply just leave. I mean, honestly, sometimes it's just not worth you know almost wasting your time like that. And yep. uh, like like you're saying with the abstracts is that that's kind of the same thing for me. Like a lot of my videos or quite a few of my videos uh, from my on location series. Um, a lot of them just kind of resorted to doing abstracts, like you're saying, just because I couldn't find anything else compelling, really, the photograph. Mm -hmm. And like what you mentioned with lighting, it's really deceiving because it's pretty much the opposite. What humans see as great light is pretty much the complete opposite for what photographers see as great light. Of course, for sunsets and sunrises, they're the exception. But like during the day, we love cloudy skies um, and like when I was a beginner photographer, I would go out on a beautiful blue sky day and want to shoot a beautiful woodland <laughs> scene, you know, with that nice light uh, going through the woodlands. But then I realized how terrible and like uh, crunchy and like, you know what I mean? It's just like, there's little blown out highlights, little speckles of light, just uh -huh. like peering through all, if it's like, like a summer canopy of trees and leaves, then it's just going to be sprinkled throughout on the ground. It's going to be on the, you know, the rocks. It's going to be, Ugh. yeah <laughs> just thinking about it, it's just yeah i know what you mean uh -huh. though it's definitely we um i like how you said humans and photographers like they're two different people but <laughs> um <laughs> yeah yeah i get what you mean um but yeah it's like i understand what you mean is that we look for a different light and it's like by all means we don't mean a blue sky sunny day is not beautiful necessarily or that we can't photograph because there's obviously like the sunny f16 rule um that i i learned pretty early on i bet you did too um and yeah i i haven't heard of that rule oh really yeah it's basically if it's a blue sky day like midday lighting as we know it then you just set your your aperture the f16 i think it's like iso 200 or just 100 and that's like a, that's like a golden rule basically for that kind of lighting yeah uh, yeah that's something oh really I, i'm surprised it's something i learned early on uh, i mean like obviously I, I i mean i know that you can do that but I generally try to not go past f11 really just kind of my personal style yeah um, i i resort to focus stacking and stuff to get that depth of field but it, it's a it's like more like it's like the rule of thirds it's more like a guideline i know it says rule of thirds but mm -hmm. it's just more of like a thing to it's like a starting point so it's like if it's a bright sunny day you're out with a camera outdoors set it to f16 and then go from there and adjust you know your exposure accordingly um, but I mean, if you if you want to shoot smaller scenes, like say a little landscape on the forest floor, like a yeah. tiny landscape on the Isolate, forest floor, like a, a leaf or something mm -hmm. on the ground. If you can find like a flower with a dot of like sunlight on it, you got a great shot. I actually took a shot like that today. Um, it was a really bright blue sky day. It was actually kind of disappointing at first because I, I drove down there to the park and it was a cloudy day. I was going to shoot a waterfall and then it got sunny as soon as I parked and got <laughs> out, of course. But there were these beautiful flowers and I, got, I was able to capture a moth on this flower and oh, there was just nice. a tiny bit of sunlight catching it. So the background was almost completely black, which I love. Well, there's still some green, but that really nice dark green and then the nice highlight on the flower. So look for those spots of light if you're on the blue sky day. Well, the cool part is you can adjust that in post and you can, you know, take that shadow slider and just drop it all the way out. You can make it oh, effectively yeah. a yep. totally black background that would isolate that moss mm -hmm. subject. So, yeah, and I want to see the image, man. It sounds really good. Yeah, um, I'll paste it into the drive here. Yeah, it sounds good. Um, I, I wanted to go back and backpedal a little bit, but you mentioned about um, appreciating 
the experience of getting outdoors and hiking solely for the purpose of hiking. Um, it's something that also I've kind of had to go back and forth with. I still wrestle with uh, to this day, honestly, um, because it's like today I actually went out. Um, I met up with a good friend of mine. Um, he's He does some photography, not anything too crazy, but, you know, just as a hobby. Uh, but we both really appreciate, you know, hiking and stuff. So we met up at a local metro park and just kind of, you know, got some mileage in for the evening, um, actually before I record this episode. Uh, and he, um, yeah, I don't, I, I tried to, I've learned over the years to not really bring my camera because I just find I make my best work when I'm alone most of the time. Or mm -hmm. if it's like another photographer that kind of gets me in my pace, you know, my style and all that. Um, but yeah, I didn't bring the camera, you know, I left it at home and I just tried as much as I can to appreciate the experience. And um, me and him parked it actually opposite parts of this metro park. It's a pretty big place. And so I kind of like hiked with him a while. Um, he had to go, so I went to his parking lot. So I had like a good three miles to myself to go back to my parking lot on the other side of the place. And uh, like I said, uh, no camera. I took like one panorama with my phone at the end, but that's about it. And I simply just enjoyed mm -hmm. the experience. And uh, but yeah, like it's but the photography, it's like you train your eye to see things even when you don't have a camera necessarily in your hand. And so, like while I'm hiking, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just kind of looking around, enjoying the sights and sounds um, of the you know mainly woodland that I'm in. And uh, I was looking for potentially future compositions when I do return with the camera. See, I, I commend you for that because I've missed photo opportunities before, you know, when I didn't have my camera. I just, I'm not strong enough to not bring it. Like <laughs> the main one that sticks in the back of my mind is I was in Washington, D.C. Um, and there was this beautiful kind of spotlight lighting the Washington Monument. And then there was this stream of car i was on the other side of the road and there's a stream of cars i envisioned the shot it could have been a long exposure with the car trails and the, the uh, washington monument the headlights oh but i did not decide to bring my camera i brought it everywhere else in dc but that one night on that one walk <laughs> I not bring my camera so ever since then i've been you know just always bring it and sometimes it's a huge detriment i mean if you really want to hike do a nice long hike your camera gear will slow you down like yeah. When I'm walking with family and I have my camera gear, they're like, why are you going so slow? <laughs> yeah. I, I, gear like, is heavy. It's it is. And um, like I said, with my example from today, it's like that Metro Park I went to has, it's quite a lot of mileage. It's about, you know, eight to 10 miles um, in just a single space like that. And there's quite a big steep elevation gains, you know, rising and falling hills um, along this kind of like wooded ravine. So yeah, I couldn't imagine. I didn't have anything really on me, on my person. You probably felt like you were floating. I, I did. No, like seriously, I was like, uh -huh. I, I purposely went there just to not have gear with me because you do need to, I think, unplug a little bit and just, you know, like you said, simply enjoy uh -huh. the experience because sometimes the photography gets in the way. I mean, just I'm putting it out there. It's just sometimes it's almost like a drag. And um, when I am in mm -hmm. photo mode, it's like it's on and that's what I'm doing. But like sometimes I just like to just be out, you know, get exercise, enjoy a company with a friend and just, yeah. And it's, touch. it's just not fun for other non-serious photographers to have yeah. the person you're hiking with stop every two seconds to take a picture of like a, a snail or like a, a leaf on a, a ground or something. You know? Yeah. I, I, like I said, I tried it and it's, it can, it takes a really patient person. One of the main popular things in composition, we all know it. I mean, I assume most of the listeners know it rule of thirds ryan do you follow it yes yes uh very much i will say 
I think early on that photographers should really follow it more closely. Like it's kind of like one of those things, like when you learn the rules, then you can break them. So like, I feel like early on you should really abide by that rule because it teaches you artistically speaking, how to place subjects off center, um, depending on what it is and the, you know, the placement of the frame. And I just feel like it makes a much more pleasing, aesthetically pleasing photograph overall. But like, once you get mm-hmm. to a certain point, there, gets, there comes a certain point where it's like, it, it becomes too predictable. And depending on obviously the, you know, the subject, the conditions and all that, it almost looks too uh, uh, tacky, I guess. Like it just looks kind of mm-hmm. awkwardly placed in, cer- in certain uh, circumstances really. But so yes, I use it, but I, I like to call it the guideline of thirds, like I said a little bit ago. And I just see it more as a guideline to frame and compose my photographs. Yeah, I, I'm kind of on the same boat. I I mean, I break it very often, but like it's, you know, it's not an actual rule. You're not going to get arrested if you don't follow it. But <laughs> no, uh, what I will say is, say you're, you have, you're shooting a bird and you place it on the third and it says it's looking out of the frame. You don't want to place that on the edge of the frame, if that makes sense, on the on the right third. You're going to want to place that on the – we'll say it's looking to the right. You're not going to want to pr- place it on the right for third. I can't speak. On the right third because you, then it will be like – it looks like it's looking off screen. You're going to want to be on the left third so it can kind of look through the frame, if that makes sense. Yeah. It, you want the, you want negative space, which we'll dive into that next, I guess. Um, but you want negative space where it's basically blank. That's doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be like – nothing in that side, but you want mm. space for if it's like a bird or some kind of wildlife subject or even like people. I mean, I know we're outdoors, but even people, but you want it to look a certain way quite literally so that it has a space to look into. If it's looking like uh, what Henry said there is if it's looking to the right and it's on the right side, it just kind of looks awkward. It doesn't look, it looks out of place and there's, there's or like the- even, Imagine you're shooting a beautiful waterfall and it's kind of small in your frame. Imagine if you place that on the very edge, that would be kind uh, of strange. Yeah, I've, where it looks like it's almost falling out of the frame. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I've taken quite a few like that. And yeah, it's it's something you learn with time. Um, but it's essentially you want you want to compose things creatively and but also uh, you know kind of sticking adhering to these set of guidelines where. Um, basically what people want to see in a photograph because certain people kind of expect certain things in images, um, non-photographer people, people that just may be viewing your work or may purchase your work. And there's certain mm-hmm. things they like to see. So, I mean, it's like, this is an obvious example, but it's like if you have a, like a flower petal or a flower head photographed macro style and it's filling the frame, but there's a little bit on one side of it cut off the petals. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, I, I yeah, like... That, that would personally bug us, of course, me and uh, Henry here, but like for a viewer, they may find it kind of awkwardly framed and they'll be like, why is it cut off there? And uh-huh. like, how do you explain that other than just quite literally laziness, you know? Just and sometimes it. it's not even that they even recognize that they like the rule of thirds. Um, the reason the rule of thirds is so popular is that there's actually scientific studies that so show that people looking at photographs are most engaged by a subject on the third there you ever heard of the golden ratio the fibonacci sequence mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's essentially yeah, it's, where how, uh, how would you explain that it's like basically a spiral look up like an image like where person. where your eye falls naturally in the image yeah like it's, that's it's another thing like 
pretty much. A similar case is when you have a blurry background. You're almost pretty much guaranteed to go to the subject in focus, even if you're not intentionally doing that. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's always imperative. Um, people, wildlife, doesn't matter. Anything with eyes, pretty much. You want to have that focus, dead set, sharp, pin sharp onto the eye. Because the typical viewer, they can notice from a mile away, just you know, viewing your work, whether it's in print or on web, hey, this eye is a little bit blurry and it's going to really just stick out to them like a sore thumb into you. Mm. See, that's what some portrait photographers will do wrong. They have like these F1.2 lenses and they shoot right at F1.2 and then they get a nice blurry background, but then they sacrifice focus because with that shallow of a depth of field, you can accidentally focus on like the eyelash even and the eye will be out of focus. So you really want to make sure maybe like a F2 aperture or something just gives you a little bit of breathing room so you can get that nice sharp eye. Yeah. And I think that that segues into the next uh, theme here with composition, I think is focus and focus necessarily doesn't mean composition, but it definitely plays a big part in composing your photographs. And I, uh, I feel like it just helps mm -hmm. to properly frame your subject. Um, a little quick story is I remember back when I was doing my uh, NYIP uh, New York Institute of Photography days, uh, we had this assignment where you're supposed to photograph um, like a, essentially like a still life image outdoors. And so I took my, my favorite watch at the time and I took it to a, a local park or whatever. I placed it. It was a nice, beautiful light. It was really pleasant, kind of like late autumn, uh, almost golden hour light. Uh, but I placed it onto this really rustic fence. I used a super, super wide aperture and I focused right on the band of the watch. And then mm -hmm. I, I was so proud of this image. It was like a weird, hokey, kind of wonky angle, vertical orientation. Um, edited, of course, uh, submitted it. One of the mentors is like, great image. I love the lighting, but is the subject of the image the watch band or the watch face? And I was like, oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I don't think I have the image anymore. Uh, I'll have to check. But yeah, I was just like, because I like the rest of it. But like when the this guy, that the mentor that you know reviewed my assignment, he saw that. He, he quite literally said it like that. He's like, but is this about the watch brand and the watch head? Or the watch band? Are you trying to, you know, pitch this to a manufacturer <laughs> of watch bands? It was like, yeah, oh, it's just a mess. At least for me, it was a, bit, a little embarrassing. And I was like, ah. Oh. Yeah. So, anyways, um, the moral of the story is to uh, focus is essential, and where you place your and focus, focus means everything. Yeah, focus is one of the few things you cannot really change in post production. Like you can do as much sharpening as Very you want, that will never get into focus. Yeah, and all that sharpening is just going to bring more digital noise, which it generally is unwanted yep. by most people. Um, and then the the other thing with focus, too, is specifically for landscapes, you really just have to look at the scene. I, I wouldn't say always try to get it – like it's kind of maybe controversial, but I don't always try to get everything in focus for landscapes. I like getting some kind of blur. Like I'll still shoot at the F8 or F11, but I don't mind if some – some of the plants in the foreground are a little soft. As long as that subject's nice and sharp, I'm happy. Yeah, I, f I feel like focusing, because I, I kind of divide my work up into uh, two sides, where it's like interpretive photography and documentative. And I feel like for documentative, I want everything to, like, let's say if it is a landscape, I want it to all be from front to back and sh uh, in focus, because um, I'm documenting merely the scene in front of me. But if it's interpretive, I may be more forgiving if there's some foreground blur from like some vegetation, you know, on the ground floor right next to me. But um, it just really depends on really what you're mm. um, like this episode is about composing and what you really want to share 
uh, with your work. Mm. And one cool technique with focus specifically that I've seen Thomas Heaton do is say it's a really misty day. He'll even turn on manual focus and not even focus on anything. So he'll get like a blurry image and it actually turns out quite well. I, I, wouldn't, so you call just, it, I wouldn't call it blurry. It's more like just soft focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because blurry to me is like you shake the camera mid shutter capture, whether it's intentional or not. But yeah, it's like a, <laughs> he, he goes for like a soft focus, which is something I've done before, but it can it has mixed results depending uh -huh. on what you're doing with it. And then, of course, I still do focus stack. Um, when I'm shooting like a waterfall and there's some nice rocks in front of me, of course, I'll do a nice focus stack. But generally, I like to get it all in one shot, and I usually focus on the subject, unless the subject's right in front of the camera. Just a rule of thumb, if the subject's right in front of the camera and you focus on that, everything else will be pretty darn blurry. Um, and then it's kind of the vice versa, too, if you focus on the background. If there's something really close to your lens, that's almost guaranteed to be out of focus, no matter what aperture you're using, pretty much. Yeah, and composing like photographs uh, depends on your subject, really. If it's like a vertical, like if it's a waterfall, you may want to focus, you know, a third of the way into the scene to get hyperfocal distance, where it, essentially, if you do it right, can mm -hmm. get from front to back most of the image or the frame pin sharp. <laughs> but like. Even like that's not it works for some lenses. Like I think the third really only applies to wide angle. I've heard you really have to do the calculations for some of the closer in. So it's really a really complicated thing. I believe there's an app you can do to calculate it. Yeah, um, I use photo. I, I know some some just focus to infinity. I don't know. I I guess I should try that sometime, but I'm not sure if that's exactly the most viable method. Yeah, as we're talking about focusing, um, I will be confession here. I, I usually stick to autofocus like ninety percent of the time. There's a very few hey, I mean opportunities where I'll like switch off to I'll switch it on to manual. Um, usually, if it's like a macro where I really want to get it precise, but it's usually when it's mounted on a tripod. We we both have the same or similar focusing systems, and I, I bet we can both say Canon autofocus is at least for me it's better than my manual focusing most of the time. As long as there's a good amount of light, I trust it more than my eye in most scenarios. So I'm kind of on the same boat for you. I yeah, really prioritize autofocus unless I'm looking for a very, very specific thing. Yeah, Canon DSLRs, I feel like, um, I can't really speak for most other manufacturers, but yeah, their autofocus is pretty top-notch. And I honestly, I trust that more most of the time than right. my own eyes, my own eyesight, because it's just sometimes I just, I'd rather risk... Mm. I'd rather not risk, you know, manual focus and potentially, you know, off focus, blurry image rather than just autofocus and just hope for the best in the pin sharp. I will say, I will say though that at least on my camera, my tracking autofocus is pretty, pretty terrible. But um, it, the next, probably the next, I'll buy my next camera will be in the R system and they improved greatly, so I have hope. So it's not like it's. I'll always have to deal with a bad tracking. But besides that, the autofocus is amazing. I'm usually in one shot for landscapes and then servo for wildlife. But Yeah, that's pretty much the same here. Um, yeah, you usually use autofocus. Uh, for most wildlife, I'll servo, like you said, um, just especially if you're like tracking, let's say, a bird in flight. Um, a landscapes, you know, it can usually slow down and really kind of focus and emphasize your composition. Um, and I'm more forgiving about using manual focus because I usually have more than enough time to take this set of images. 
Uh, so the mm-hmm. next one, I really, I really like this one, but uh, it's negative space. And that kind of goes hand in hand with minimalist photography. Um, it's something I try to approach with a lot of my work, a nice, clean, simple image. Um, very essential, I think, to composing photographs is to remove anything that's not essential, you know, remove all distractions. Yep. Whether that's in post with cloning tools, clone stamp tool, or if more preferably, if you can remove it, you know, in camera um, when you're with, while you're out in the field as well. So yeah, with negative space, um, it is it's great. But which you, one thing you do have to remember, just a general warning before we get into some negative space techniques and stuff, you do have to be careful about sensor dust and stuff because if you have like a blank color, at least I find there's always some kind of like banding or you see noise or some kind of dot dust in the sky so just keep that in mind um i've had problems with that before it's especially if you use a wide aperture so yep. that just make it much more apparent dust spots or just a bundled yeah. look in maybe a sky or something like that yeah i don't know why that is i think it would be the opposite because there's more of an opening but i don't know i think it's just because it's like it's much more of a like like i said if it's like a sky or something whether it's blue or gray it doesn't really matter or in between, but it's much more like a solid color. So it's going to show those mm-hmm. spots more because the spots are always, you know, unless you clean it or get it repaired are always going to be on that sensor. So I feel like it just brings yeah, it but, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Negative space is great, um, especially for wildlife and like flower stuff and macro. Uh, you can really just really isolate your subject and just great get some great, great shots with that. Um, yeah, I feel like it's applicable to like any form of outdoor photography, even landscapes. Mm-hmm. Landscapes, especially if you're doing wide angle, they can pretty quickly, easily become cluttered uh, with just tons of unnecessary details. But um, I guess one example would be using like a small telephoto and you can, you know, zoom in and crop in, essentially crop in real close um, and, you know, what I call extract details from, you know, maybe like a waterfall that's yep. not big or, uh, even like some I've, reads I've, in like the you know like a little pond that create like a little pleasing ex, uh, reflection. I've really seen like an overall push towards those longer focal lengths. Me at least, I'm usually around thirty five, fifty, and then usually out to like a hundred millimeters. That's usually where I live for landscapes, um, mm-hmm. and then for like flowers and stuff, I like to go really far in like two hundred, two hundred fifty millimeters. Get that nice separation. Yeah, oh, and pretty much same. And like you here. said, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and good. like you, like you said, the longer the focal length, the more negative space. Even if you don't think there's negative space, when you go in, things will get compressed. So yes, even yes. if the subject takes up more of the frame, there's still less clutter because those branches are getting blurred. You know, like all the all the details are getting kind of mushed together in a positive way. Yeah, it's no matter like comparing telephoto lenses to wide angle lenses, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the aperture. It's essentially the focal length creates this sort of what you said compresses the distance, uh, at least in a telephoto. So it's naturally going to look more drawn, you know, I don't know how to describe it really drawn into, you know, the subject or whatever you focus on. Mm -hmm. More isolated almost. Yeah, isolated. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's like so, like a wide angle you know, by definition is going to be a wider angle essentially. <laughs> and it's going to have more into the scene and you can use, you know, the widest aperture and focus in the foreground, but it's still going to show off a lot of detail in the background, but a telephoto 
you know, on the contrast is going to draw you into the scene more. And what I like to say is pull in the viewers kind of into the frame. Um, and of course, a wide angle is still very useful. I use it for, I'm pretty much always at 24 millimeters for like sunset shots, seascapes, landscapes. Well, not land, not all landscapes, but like any kind of water scenes where I want to really get that nice beach and show the waves and stuff. So I'm usually always wide for that. But like I said, I'm generally mostly telephoto. Yeah, I think most of my work's really going, unless if it's like a really tall waterfall that needs to be encompassed. Um, in a wide angle perspective, because, you know, just quick aside is like, you know, you want to show the rise and fall most of the time, at least uh, for like a waterfall. But um, yeah, most of my work, like you said, is I would say composed of zoom lenses, of course, but it's also a lot of telephoto work, smaller telephoto, at least, um, you know, like a wildlife, like a bird, obviously it's going to require more zoom factor, but that's going to look nicer because then you're going to clean up that background. So if it's a blue sky, it's going to drop all that out of focus. Um, or even any kind of background tree branches. But um, naturally, I would say the cleaner the image, uh, visually clean at least, the better. Black and white um, with negative space is really good to like, get that nice. You can really, using your editing software, if you adjust the tint, say to maybe pink or something, the sky could become like completely black and you could get like a really moody black and white image with some nice negative space. So that's just another composition tip. Yeah, there's there's been quite a few images I've taken, like even when immediately there out in the field where I just kind of visualized whether it was before the shutter capture or after, I was just like, this would look good in black and white. And I almost, I want to say almost like shoot for that sometimes. Um, but sometimes even in post, I'll just flip on, you know, after you know exporting a colored image, I'll just flip on that black and white sliders, desaturate it all. And I almost like it better. Because uh, I feel like that black and white really, you could almost call color like a distraction in some images. And if you remove that extraneous detail, it actually you know opens up more uh, minimalist you know qualities to your photographs. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I have a bit of a problem with black and white. See, the thing is, kind of like abstracts, black and white has kind of become my backup if I don't like the shot. I need to get over that. I need to start intentionally shooting more black and whites, but. Well, I mean, unfortunately, right now, that's kind of my default if I don't like the image. It's something I, I like to see it as a well, I, I shoot for color, I'd say, first and foremost, pretty much all the time. But yeah, like um, like waterfalls in particular are ones where it's like I don't really think about the black and white necessarily. But like in post, I'm definitely like to make a second copy of each image in black and white. So it's like something that I look out for in the back of my head. But it's not I, I'm not I don't consider myself to be a black and white photographer like um you know, one good example is, uh, I think his name's David Yarrow. He does uh, African elephants and he's, his work exclusively publishes um, in black and white digital photography. Oh, wow. Uh, Clyde Butcher too. He's never, like he, his entire life, he's like in his eighties now, he's never shot a color frame. He has ever oppor wow. every opportunity to, but he just, well, I'm sure he shot like iPhone photos and color and stuff, but he's always done. He used to do black and white film. He's moved to digital now since he's older, but always black and white. So or even, he bought the Leica. He bought the Leica camera that's digital, designed for black and white only. So he can't even shoot color if he wants to. So that's pretty cool. 
That's pretty neat. Or you could even go way back to before color film was really a thing and go like Ansel Adams is a classic example. He only saw, uh-huh. I mean, he saw the landscape in color, of course, in person, but in his, I mean, I'm guessing if I could get in his head for a second here, he was probably visualizing each mountain peak or just even like an intimate landscape, like a leaf or a pine forest, you know, in black and white. He was just thinking in that kind mm-hmm. of monochromatic uh, kind of mindset with his work. And like, imagine how much, you know, how much time he put into planning those images. He would be out there for months waiting to get those shots. Imagine if he had to worry about color as well. I mean, we may not have the same kind of, he wouldn't be as famous maybe because he would have been, had to deal with different shades. And I don't know, you know, I think black and white really helped the newer photography, like the first generation photographers with like the old cameras. I think having black and white really helped them kind of grow. You kind of see what I mean? Like they, with their limited gear, like their kind of lesser, really hard to handle film, it was really nice to have that simplicity of black and white so they can really focus on composition and lenses and really learning this new kind of art. Yeah. Have you, have you seen that they actually taken Ansel's photographs or anyone's and they digitally retouched them with color? Have you seen that kind of stuff before? Oh, that's cool. I, I have not, no. Yeah, it's actually. Well, I know actually my grandpa, he did that with uh, some old family photos, but. Yeah. Not... They take like the film yeah. negatives and they scan them and then they just like, I don't know how it's like magic. They just like put it to color and they retouch them. And do they like, man? do they manually paint the color or do they extract it somehow? Well, no, it's black and white. They scan the negative, of course, is black and white, but um, I think they just take some like brush tools, like maybe in Photoshop and they just, mm-hmm. they kind of just by, I guess by memory or something, just throw it together it's it's quite incredible honestly yeah that's awesome all right so what other techniques do you employ compositionally um like like you said at the beginning leading lines um i like to yes. like if there's a if the focal point for me is like let's say in the mid mid the mid ground or like a tree maybe in a, like a prairie or meadow i like to obviously focus on that and then I like to maybe, if I can, like the conditions are right, I like to have a trail leading up to that. So what that does is it allows the viewer to, you know, kind of guide, I pretty much guide the viewer to what I want them to see in the image. Yeah. Um, leading lines is another one of those things, like the rule of thirds, that has some science behind it. Um, that also leads viewers into the subject of the frame. So you want to be careful of leading lines too, though. You don't want it to lead yourself out of the frame you want it to lead in so generally if you're doing like i'd say a horizontal photo you're going to want to have your leading line like start at the bottom or go towards the subject not like out of the frame so like if you have a river like i'm thinking you talked about ansel adams i'm thinking about his famous photo of that you know that mountain with the curved river below it um yeah it's probably one of those yosemite ones Right. Yeah, yeah it's, I'm actually looking at it. It's on my, it's on my wall. I've got his three of his photos on which, my wall. Which one is it called? Do you know the title? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I'll, I could put it in the episode. Um, he has the river leading into the frame. So if he had it leading out of the frame, it would be a completely different photo. But he has it curving towards. It starts at the right corner and goes up towards the left corner, and then kind of leads you into the mountain in the top of the frame. So that can be a really effective strategy. Yeah, I see it as like, because I'm all about, when it comes to composition, I, I like to think, I like to make something that pleases me first and foremost, but then it's also 
I want to almost entertain the audience that may be viewing the image. So obviously we want to invite them into the image um, visually speaking. Uh, we don't want to lead them out. So like you were saying with the, the river, you kind of want it to be flowing into the image and lead you to maybe what would be, if that's not the main subject, lead it into the main one, let's say the, the mountain peak in the background. Yeah. Um, like, again, um, one of the best compliments I got for that, or some of the judge feedback I got for the state fair winning waterfall was they love the leading line. So that S curve also kind of served as the leading line, leading them into the frame. I even got some, when I was visiting the photo and people found out it was mine, um, I got compliments from non-photographers about the leading line too. So you don't have to be a professional photographer to recognize that strategy when you're looking at photos. Yeah, it's really neat that they picked up on that. Yeah, I mean, quite, mm -hmm. quite frankly, most people wouldn't notice or at least say something. But um, I can really appreciate when someone kind of really studies an image and focuses on what they like about it and can actually yeah. point it out to you. I think that's really neat. Uh, so another Indeed. one... Another one that's kind of goes in hand in hand with leading lines is uh, S-curves. Um, it's something I try to look for. Um, it can be kind of difficult because that's that's a much more uh, refined and specific example. But uh, Henry, do you have any examples of S-curves? Uh, like, like I said, that same waterfall is still an S-curve. But uh, <laughs> uh, I actually think it is the only one. I You know, I appreciate the S-curve, but... I guess the subjects I shoot, I never really see them because I, I don't know. I guess it's just not, it's not something I would definitely before. use it if I see it, but yeah, it's something it's, it's not, it's like an opportunity that hasn't been presented to you yet, but maybe it might be an idea in the future. Something like that. There's a few woodland yeah. trails um, where I like, you know, I just, it's woodland stuff. So there's like trees, whatever, leaves, all that stuff, but there's a path and it kind of, from my perspective, whether it's telephoto or wide angle, it has a winding quality to it where it almost it almost creates an S curve that, you know, kind of leads, like I said, invites the viewer, it kind of leads them into the frame, you know, into and out in the back, from foreground to background. Well, yeah, that's the neat thing about, you know, composition essentially is that you can choose whatever you want it to be. You know, you're the creator and whatever you want to share with your work is what you compose with. So yeah, it's like S curves or something... Like I said, it's much more specific, but um, sometimes you just need it the right place, the right time, uh, the right light. You just need all those factors, variables to kind of come into play and to really you know, unfold before your eyes and your camera. Another one I thought of is uh, framing, which, I mean, it kind of sounds redundant because composition is framing, but uh, I feel like it's very important. Like um, if, mm -hmm. if there's a very, maybe there's a tall tree, but it's like just tall enough where you can you know, encompass it in one single image. And obviously if it's standing up, you know, standing, it's going to be vertical like most trees. And are you going to take a horizontal image? Not necessarily. Uh, at least most people wouldn't. Depends on what mm. you're looking for, I guess. But um, I just feel like knowing your subjects, um, and that's kind of obvious, but knowing your subjects and how it looks, the shapes of it, um, is very important and to how, how to frame it accordingly from there. And another thing you can encounter too is distortion. So that's another disadvantage of using that really wide angle on your lens. It can really distort things. Like if you're shooting like a, a, a wide landscape um, and you're framing up that there's mountains in the background, say some flowers in the foreground, those mountains will look small because of that 
natural distortion from the lens. That's something to keep in mind. Um, and of course, your telephoto shot, say you have the same general composition with a 200 millimeter and then you go a little closer with your 24 millimeter, it'll still look completely different even though you have a similar framing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because of that compression. So you do have to keep that in mind as well when framing subjects. You really have to look at what's around your subject because even if you get a tight shot on your subject, you could still have branches intruding in on the frame, maybe blocking something you don't see when you're looking at it, but when you're, you know, when you're through your viewfinder, it might show up. Um, I particularly have that problem of things showing up with birds. When I'm shooting a bird, there's this one little leaf that's small to your eye, but when you're up on that, it can ruin your shot when you try to frame it up. Um, and then for landscapes too, you got to watch out for people. It's a popular spot or, you know, you could have the most beautiful landscape, but it could be right next to a street. You know, you could get some, like, I remember I was really disappointed by this. There was this bridge um, and I was shooting waterfall under it and I did a long exposure and I got these car trails. Now, normally I think car trails are pretty good, but it kind of ruined the shot. So things like that, you just really got to keep in mind. It's funny you mentioned that because uh, earlier this year, I was at a local metro park. I hiked around for probably 10 miles. It was like a good afternoon, evening hike. Did not I filmed the video, didn't really take any images. And I was just really like, um, for lack of a better word, upset. You know, In the video, I'm just kind of like ranting by the end. And I'm like, it's sunset. I'm sweaty. I'm tired. I'm going up this hill. It's like super dark already in here. And it's like, I didn't take any images. I get to the parking lot. And there is a just a really beautiful kind of decrepit old tree. Um, had a really just interesting kind of shape to it. So I just, as a last ditch effort, it's already after dark. Um, at least there's still like twilight hour going on in the sky. And I just like took out my wide angle, plopped that on the camera, tripod, um, cable release. And I took this image of the tree and it was like a silhouetted tree, you know, typical uh, blue kind of sky. There's a little bit of sunset orange on the horizon. Uh, it's pretty boring image um, just looking back on it. But then I took a few frames of that and then a cars because it's it's a, like a country road. It's not really too much you know cars going on, but there's headlights on, of course. And this car, I can hear it coming over the hill. And it's just like during this like 25 second shutter uh, exposure. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. And I you know, just goes right by. And I was like, crap, <laughs> shutter goes off. And I look at it and it was like this, you know, red and yellow lights going right across. And actually from the backside illuminated the tree. And it's like. I, I kind of went home that day feeling like a success because I was like, that one image made it the whole day kind of worth it. And I was like, the lights, while it's not nature, actually add it to the image. And I feel like it made it the, you know, the composition overall better in that case. Yeah. But obviously, you know, you didn't plan for that. And, oh, you know, no. you're lucky. It turned out well, but I'm sure. I just preferred it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you compare, I have, I have both raw files still just because I like to compare it. And I'm like, you know, no, there's no comparison. I just felt like that, that extra element, be it, you know, an artificial light like that going right across the frame. I mean, it some, made the image better. Some, yeah. I mean, sometimes in composition, you know, the worst mistakes can end up being the best photos. Yeah, for sure. Um, one more uh, theme here or one more topic uh, I just wanted to mention is removing distractions, uh, typically in corners. Um, I always, especially with landscapes, because um, they're much more slower and methodical for me, I like to do what I call border patrol, where I uh, check mm -hmm. out four corners, 
usually I'm in live view for these images because it's mounted on a tripod um, and I just like to look at live view. It's just my preference, but um, even if you look through the viewfinder, um, I like to put on that live view and take off all the displays and just see what's before my eyes on the screen there. And then I check all four corners because a lot of things uh, can distracting things can really creep into the frame and you'd be surprised um, if it's something that you're really not looking for. They love to sneak in there. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's just more than a few times where just things creep in and then I get, you know, load the images on the computer. I'm like, darn, how did they even, you know, end up there? And yeah, you just, yeah, those things, you know, as you go out and photograph. I, that's happened to me many times as well. You, it's just like, if it's like a windy day too, you could get sometimes leaves. I remember one time I was shooting a landscape and the leaf fell like, it, I think it was like a two second exposure. So a leaf fell like right in front of my lens. So oh no. <laughs> it wasn't enough to completely ruin the image, but it like created like a green streak down the shot. It was so wow. weird. But, uh, I, I've had met more than a few of those, honestly. I, I understand what you mean. Yeah. Uh, there's a few times where it fell actually in front of the lens and it somehow didn't get it, you know, even while the shutter's, you know, open. Right. Yeah, if you have a if you have a long enough shutter speed, you can even eliminate people that are walking. Uh, I've I know I've done that before. If I oh, yeah. have like a thirty second or more exposure, they won't be in there at all as long as they don't linger. It, it'll completely blur, or even like a bird that's flying away from its perch, you'll just get like this little speck of their color. Mm. You're just kind of flooding. But sometimes away from it. Sometimes I find you you don't even like see the remnants. Like you wouldn't even know sometimes. Yeah, it just looks like a ghost. <laughs> it's like it's just barely even yep. there. It almost looks like it's just in the background at least. So um, did you have any other compositional techniques you use? I don't think so. Um, I think you, we cover, brought up a pretty much good. Mount, yeah. at least. Uh, so you got any uh, announcements this week? Um, yeah, actually, I got another publication this year. Um, it seems to be I'm on a roll with those for some reason. <laughs> but I'm really fortunate. Awesome. So, yeah, so they're in uh, the Dayton Daily News, a local newspaper. Uh, pretty big deal for me. Um, there's a local partnership with a gallery cooperative called the Contemporary of Dayton. And they partnered with Dayton Daily News, and they kind of just did this curated selection of photographs uh, for Dayton area photographers where I'm at for what they did during COVID, you know, the pandemic, the stay-at-home order. And so the themes, the, the genres, the subjects, it's all over everything, you know, streets. A lot of them had people, of course, naturally. And uh, some are much more abstract and artful. Um, mine was a little bit different because mine was focused on centrally on this snow trillium flower. I took it in early, I think March it was. And so the the whole publication was about that specific flower. No, no, it was a collection of photographs uh, people took. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's about I think 48 examples. Or uh, uh, sorry. Oh yeah, I saw, I saw that one. I remember that. That's actually, cool. yeah, I think so. it was 20, 28 uh, images. So they basically had this open submission, uh, like an artist call. And they were like, hey, email us your submissions. And it was free to enter, you know, just like a cool thing to share. Um, and you get photo credit, of course, and they share, you know, yada, yada. But yeah, they all in all, they chose my image, which is very nice. Um, I don't know how many submitted, but yeah, they have 28 images and this kind of video slideshow, a virtual slideshow. And then they also printed it and the actual newspaper. Uh, fortunately, I got a copy of it. And yeah, they're just, it's basically just, like I said, yeah, themes about people, what they did during COVID. Um, there's so many great just images here. Um, most of them, 
like I said, have people, not really so much nature, uh, but mine was this wide angle perspective of this flower, uh, spring ephemeral flower, uh, a snow trillium. Uh, it was like a wide angle perspective. It had like this dirt around it. I kind of staged the image actually, where I kind of dug away the dirt to clean up like the center around the flower, if that makes sense. And it's like a wide mm -hmm. angle perspective that shows a little bit of the sky, the horizon's kind of up towards uh, the top part of the frame. And it's meant to kind of have this uh, kind of beautiful, like I, I like to call it, you know, symbolic, you know, kind of feeling to it. Cause I took it during lockdown when I was hiking alone, I took lots of images during the, you know, that quarantine when it, you know, when it all started really. And yeah, I feel mm -hmm. like that's why they kind of chose it um, is just the this, you know, symbolism of like growth, you know, a new life kind of starting over. I feel, I feel like that's why they chose it at least, but it's a very neat little. Uh, that's yeah. That's awesome. Job. I saw that image. Yeah. You're kind of breaking the standard norm of, flower photography where you go right in. I like how you kind of sh showed some other aspects too. Yeah, that, that was a very different, um, even in the moment, I was just like, should I be doing this? Because it just feels so different from what I, I took a lot of macro shots of that same flower um, when I was there. But yeah, that one actually turned out to be one of my favorites because there's just some, something that's so different. Um, like you're saying earlier about doing a wide aperture on a landscape. This kind of feels like to me more like a landscape than a flower image. But um, yeah, having that foreground focus and then dropping out out of focus, the background. So yeah, it became one of my favorites ones. Um, even put a little quote in here. Uh, everyone has a story of what they're doing during lockdown and like therapy. This is what I did to stay occupied and sane. So yeah, it's a very cool little, um, uh, submission, you know, something that to share with. Awesome. But that's pretty much it for me. Um, for yeah. my announcements, <laughs> uh, for my announcements, um, I just posted, uh, the review of my 600 millimeter lens. Um, it's probably not the final review. It's kind of just a kind of, I've had it for about a month. So kind of initial thoughts. I'll probably do a full, like a really in-depth review, maybe in like six months or so. Um, but I like to think I put a good amount of work into that. So if you guys are interested, please check that out. Um, I'm continuing to love that lens. Uh, I actually photographed pretty rare, or at least I think they're pretty rare up in Michigan able to get some great pictures of sandhill cranes Ooh, um so nice. you'll see those on my instagram soon if you guys follow me there um also this week i've been branching out to some platforms um just in an effort to maybe try to catch some extra traffic maybe some print sales or something so i do now have a facebook and a Flickr. um so oh, cool. check my sorry check my bio on instagram no 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 problem uh, check my bio on Instagram. You should be able to find that. I have had Flickr for a long time, but I'm going to start consistently posting um, Facebook as well. Uh, just because I think I touched on this, but I really want to focus on some printing. And I believe Facebook's kind of has an older audience who might be a little, more, little bit more likely to post or to buy some prints. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of expanding to there. Um, also, I... No, I've been saying for months I'm going to do an EOS RP review, which is my camera. It's been almost a year now since I bought it. I'm finally going to start doing that. Uh, it's not going to be this week's video, but maybe in two weeks or so. So that's my announcements. Um, that's exciting. And yeah, that's, that's a yep. lot. And that's news to me. I didn't know you had a Flickr all this time and that you started a Facebook. But... Well, I hadn't posted on it since like March. So. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, Flickr. I mostly Flickr. just had it. Yeah, I, I really like it. I'm going to try to do some research on the proper tags because I feel like I could build up a good community there. The um, 
Smug Mug, uh, what I use for my website, they own uh, Flickr now. They have for a mm-hmm. couple of years now. So they're kind of like partnered with it. It's pretty cool, um, which they're, yeah. they're a good company as well. So I'm, and they pretty uh-huh. much left Flickr untouched, you know, just kept it as is. They just own it. Yep. I know Gavin Hardcastle, he posts exclusively on Flickr, which is pretty cool. Does he now? I thought he did 500 pixels, but I could be wrong. Oh, well, I don't really know anything about that. Is that even still around? That was actually, uh, let's go way back a couple of, five years ago or so. Yeah, before I had a website, an actual website, I used 500 pixels and I posted just non-nature stuff, just everything is, yeah, really old photos of mine. It's it's pretty neat. It's kind of like link in the bio. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Oh yeah, I wish I still had it because it'd be it'd be like a milestone trip down memory lane. Uh, but yeah, no, it just reminded me of because Flickr is like the same thing essentially. It's like social forums, photographs, kind of sharing, you know, groups. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's much more. It's a photography minded community. Well, it's supposed to be. <laughs> I mean, I w- I wish it was as popular as Instagram. I mean. Yeah, or at least a little bit more popular. There's so many of those communal like sites. Uh, like I'm on UPIC. Uh, well, I haven't. I have a profile, but I haven't uploaded like you said in months, just because it's it's there. But yeah, I don't. Yeah, Instagram is just. Weird. I mean, I I'd, I'd love to switch to Flickr exclusively, but I just Instagram is just. I don't know. It's just. It's sad that photographers have to use Instagram to really get out there, but it's unfortunately what we have right now. So. Yeah, definitely. And but I mean, it's obviously not terrible, but it's not optimized for what we do. Well, you you look at all the like uh, veteran Flickr users, and they say like, oh, you know, the we were in our prime in the mid, you know, aughts, you know, the mid two thousands, and it's not the same anymore. The community is just not there. So, but I'm not I'm trying to put down what you're trying to do, but mm-hmm. they, they do say like with maybe with rose tinted glasses a little bit that it was better, you know, in the past. Maybe it's yeah. not, I don't know. Let us know, I guess. <laughs> All right. So I think that's going to conclude this week's episode. Um, yeah. So like we said, if you want to be a guest, reach out. Um, got some cool episodes coming soon. Maybe a guest in the next couple of weeks. We've got some pretty cool ones. Alrighty, everyone. That's going to conclude today's episode of the All Outdoors Photography Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And I just wanted to mention that you can watch the video version on our YouTube channel if you want to subscribe down below. We're also available in audio form on Spotify, Anchor FM, and Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, uh, all those various sorts of channels and services and your favorite podcast player of choice. And you can also follow us on Instagram as well. Thank you so much for watching and I hope you have a great day and look forward to seeing you in the next episode.